Warning, this podcast is an exploration of the physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, chemical, social, historical, and economic aspects of one person's life of addiction. Stories often contain graphic descriptions of drug use, violence, and self-harm. They also contain examples of tremendous change, optimism, and hope. This is Seasoned Sobriety. In this episode of Seasoned Sobriety, I speak with Christina, a highly successful mother and career woman with a classically alcoholic background. We discuss some early traumas that led to her experimentation with drugs and alcohol and how she copes with her problems as a sober person. We also discuss her methods and motivations for staying sober. I hope you enjoy. All right, here we go. So um, I'm not going to use my last name, by the way. Okay, <laughs> I was just going to say. Okay, well, I am here with Christina. We are uh, going to have a conversation about um, recovery, sobriety, and life, and kind of some of those things in between. So, um, why don't you, you know, tell me just a little bit about your background in addiction, and you know, your background and how you got started. Uh, you know, what your childhood was like. And so we can get a little bit of context if there was addiction around or if, if you were the one-off, kind of all those things. And just give us a little bit of background about you. I was definitely not a one-off. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I don't think there's a history of addiction in my family uh, or I'm not aware of it because likely there was some stigma around it if there was any addiction. Um my mother had a very bad, uh, my dad left. My mother had a very bad experience with the divorce and she became what I would say is an alcoholic. I mean, she was a terrible, terrible, um, drinker and I was 10. So there was some definite trauma around that, um, there were suicide attempts. There were a lot of there was a lot of craziness in the house. Um, it wasn't safe. Didn't feel safe for me mm. as a ten year old. So that was pretty severe. And by the time I was thirteen, I started to steal pharmaceuticals out of my grandmother's <laughs> bathroom uh, cabinet. Um, what kind of pharmaceuticals? Valium. Okay. And I would just steal, you know, as many as I thought I could get away with without her noticing every time I went over. So um, I started to do that 
quietly and silently and with no uh, nobody else like there were no other kids that were part of that it was just me <laughs> how i knew i don't know how i knew that valium was something that i would want to take i have no idea hmm. so anyway, i started doing that then um by the time i was 15 of course i was drinking and um that was not unusual really because all the kids I hung out with were doing that as well. Sure. So it didn't feel out of sorts, but... Where did you grow up? I grew up um, in Hopkins. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, almost downtown Hopkins, just western suburb. Sure. Um, and so that was, at that time, that was common amongst your peer it group, It was really least. common. And sure. I mean, there were kids who didn't, but I didn't really hang out with them, so I just thought it was normal, like everybody does this, you know, at 15 or 14. I started smoking when I was, I got caught smoking the first time when I was 12, 13. <laughs> and then I, um, so then after that, um, when I was 16, I was able to um, leave my house in a way that was good. I got a scholarship, an AFS scholarship to go to New Zealand. So I lived in New Zealand for a year, but while there, I used heavily. Hmm. Um, I've, I hooked up right away with some kids that were pharmaceutical users, and hmm. I don't know where they got their drugs. I can't even tell you what they were, but we quickly um, started to do that. And so that happened, and I drank a lot, and I got kicked out of two houses. Hmm. <laughs> and then the third house, uh, which is one of the, you know, there's places in your life where you feel like you got saved. They were, I think, one of the reasons that I didn't die between then and now because they were truly a loving family and they were everything you would want want <laughs> to have. Safe home, kind people. So they were great and I stopped using as much when I was at their house. I sort of did more of a casual, like when they were out, we might all have a beer, but I didn't, I wasn't like I was when I first got there. Hmm. So then um, I came home Graduated from high school early. I um, actually falsified my transcript so that I could, <laughs> so that I could get out of high school, hmm. and I did. And I again um, made a plan to get out in a good way. And I moved to Colorado, where I worked on a dude ranch, which was okay. My my parents knew I was going, and they were okay with it. But it was a dude ranch in Estes Park, at the base of Estes Park, and. Um, we, I was in, the, you know, we waited on tables and there was a living facility in the back. And so we did that for a very short time. And then uh, because we would go out drinking every night, the owner decided to lock the gate. Hmm. <laughs> and so we um, went on strike. I'm sure it was my idea too. Let's go on strike. It'll be great. There's no way he can fire all 10 of us. Sure. But lo and unionize. Old, yeah. <laughs> He did fire all 10 of us. So oh, wow. 10 of us were standing there, kicked out, and had no place to go. So Did uh, they turn on you? <laughs> they said, no, great idea. No, they were, it was fine. Everybody, we, there was one car, and it could fit five people in it. So in fives, five went to Boulder, then five came back, and then five followed to Boulder. And by some unbelievable... I don't know what or how I found within days a place that was $400, a house that was $400 a month. And that was $40 a piece because each of us probably only had a hundred bucks mm -hmm. for our name. So we moved in there. There was no furniture. 
There was no anything to cook with. It was just 10 kids in a house. At this point, I'm 17. Hmm. And it was an open door of drugs and people and people floating in and out. The door was never locked. I don't even know who came and went. So drug use got worse. <laughs> Can I back you up just because I'm curious about something? Uh, what is AFS? American Field Scholarship. It's a they basically they pay for most of the journey, and it's a it's a scholarship. That, it's like um, Road Scholars. Okay. Or, so it's an a, it's a pretty prestigious to, academic scholarship. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I got straight A's. I the, I got straight A's my whole life. I never didn't. And people thought I was normal. I mean, I was... It's amazing what that can mask. I was held highly, actually, in the eyes of everybody, re regarded as an A student, a good kid. Um, you know, I participated in community. I cared about people. Mm -hmm. All those things were true, but on the sideline, I was completely a mess. Hmm. <laughs> a wreck or a accident waiting to happen like seriously out of control behavior so you're in this flop house essentially <laughs> in boulder yep and i think i i don't know how i got a job i was really i got a job i did i got a job at a deli and um i met people that this is a long time ago in boulder so it's a way different place than i think it is today but there was a lot of there were drugs were everywhere it was in the 80s and you know you couldn't find a better place for drugs hmm. so i happened upon um you know people that were <laughs> i made friends with people that worked on the mall which means they were one was a magician another was a sword swallower mm -hmm. <laughs> he did that for a living and so I hooked up with those guys, and through them I met a guy that was, I was 18, he was 42, something like that, 38, and he was a Coke dealer. And so that was the beginning of my Coke addiction, hmm. which was pretty bad for a long time. Um, so that, you know, those are just dark times, really, just kind of dark. <laughs> so from there um the end of that was that uh one night after being out and doing every i don't even know how many drugs i don't even know what but a lot of drinking drugs coke who knows what else it was five o'clock in the morning and i was um w i went for a walk and a car came screaming down the street in a 30 mile an hour lane I think it was a Trans Am and it was going like probably 55 or 60 and it hit the curb and jackknifed up into the air hmm. and then hit a gigantic oak tree and the car crashed into like pieces were just flying out and bodies just flew out there were four people in the car and they I mean, it, to me, it was like way up high. I don't know how high it actually was because I was under several influences. But the net net was they were dead, and it was a tremendously terrible experience. Hmm. So. And you're the only witness to this. Well, yeah, it was five in the yeah, morning, just... and then I heard sirens. Like it's almost like it was a dream, you know. I heard sirens, and it got bright and shiny, and lights were spinning, and 
was wasted, you know. So is it real? Is it not real? I'm not sure mm -hmm. what's going on. Um, it was real, but um, so I just walked home again, and <laughs> oddly, my brother showed up in a jeep with his two friends, and they were on a road trip, and he said that they had called it their rescue mission. Hmm. Did he know kind of what you were up he to? He must have. I don't know how or I don't know why. I must have told him. And um, roughly how long had this been? You were, you know, when you say like you'd started using and stuff, has this been like a couple of weeks, months, oh, years? No, it, was or? A, it was a year. Okay. Was, so you're like 18, in, 19 or something now? Is this? Yeah, I went there when I was 17. I left when I was 18. I went back again. So then that strike continued. So, but in the middle, he came and got me. Okay. And said, "We're rescuing you." And so, he's older. Yeah. Okay. He's one year older. Okay. And he, uh, and so I said, "Great!" And I got all my crap and jumped in my car and drove back here. Hmm. And then I went to school, or maybe I went to Madison. I don't know. It's all kind of cloudy. So I, I went to Madison at some point. Mm -hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. Did a ton, ton of drugs there. Another place that's friendly for drugs. <laughs> yeah. Um, went back to Boulder, did that again, came back here, uh, and then I went to the U. Okay. So you're, were you in school at all in Boulder or this is a... No, no, no. I was just doing drugs. Yeah. This is a gap year. Pure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so you... It was a gap, a hole. <laughs> I don't know what we might call it. A memory gap. So <laughs> yeah. you, um, but you get back to Minnesota and you decide, I'm going to go to school in yeah, Madison. Yeah, so I went to... So, well, I had, I, I don't know, I must have gotten into Madison, and so I was in Boulder, and I thought, well, I'll try it, but I only stayed for a few months. Okay. I just did drugs there for a few months, and then went back to Boulder, then came back to Minnesota. Hmm. So then I went to the U, and I went to the U for seven years, and during the U, I think my, I said when I came back I wasn't going to do cocaine anymore, I was done, which I did quit doing. Um, and I drank throughout the U for sure. I drank and did dumb things, and you know, what? kind of I guess what college kids do mm -hmm. I never lived in a dorm or on campus or anything so it was always I didn't really have a big network of people hmm. um, but I did well in school I graduated with a almost 4.0 uh, GPA and while drinking and working full-time and putting myself through school so I you know I did okay mm -hmm. it was good actually I think I'm proud of that paid for it all worked you know several jobs while studying when you stopped doing cocaine, was there any intervention or did you no, just decide this is... I just this decided is, I wasn't going to do it anymore. This is too much. I need to just... Yeah, I did. I was like, that's not good. I okay. quit. So I did. Um, but I still drank a ton and I'm sure I did a bunch of... Um, at that point, it was probably mushrooms or acid or, you know, things like that. Hallucinogenics mm -hmm. in college. But mostly I drank. Mostly it was drinking. And it was, you know dumb stupid but you know college kids kind of do that yeah. so it didn't again feel abnormal <laughs> and I was achieving the whole time which I've always done in spite of myself so so I'll skip some of that I've traveled overseas a couple of times and yada yada but I got sure. my degree um, what were you going to school for I got a degree in history okay yep and then I worked uh, in nonprofits for a long time, and then it's sort of just the same for a while. I'm not, I'm drinking like everyone else, kinda, and it's, you know, probably more than most people, but, um, you know, not seriously problematic, just stupid. Mm -hmm. 
But then, so I'm going to fast forward now a long ways because that kind of went on for a long time. And there was always drugs and pot and, you know, all of that was involved. But again, it didn't feel so much more than anybody else I was hanging out with, you know? Right. It was just your life. And it probably seemed pretty tame compared it to did, the compared Colorado It did, compared to some of the and, other yeah. earlier events. It felt really fine, you know? But, you know, I, that's or at all least routine. It's all relative. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, there are people who don't drink, which I'm like, really? That's true? <laughs> well, now I'm one of them. But anyway, um, so then I'm going to fast forward now because sure. that's kind of the way it was. And I, in that time frame, I got married. I had a beautiful daughter. She's from China, but um, adopted a beautiful daughter from sure. China. Um, you know, bought bought and sold real estate and had, you know, functional, completely yeah. functional, got good jobs, um, climbed the corporate ladder, became really efficient and effective and strong leadership capabilities. I was at a high level at Target when I got laid off. And I had been there 18 years, actually. So mm. uh, partly as a contractor and partly as a team member. But that is when sort of the beginning of then happened for me. Um and that was 2015. Okay. So it was at that point where things definitely fell apart. <laughs> Say more about that. What do you mean? Because that can be different things to different people. Yeah. Um, well, I would say my self-esteem took a dive. Uh And I started to drink more, more silently, more alone, and more, <laughs> more and more and more and more. So that was progressively getting worse from 2015 to 2017. And so it was kind of a vicious cycle because nobody knew it, though. It was completely silent, and I was still really successful in my next job. So I had a, a new, so I got a new job, and I was extremely successful in it, and um, did really great work. I traveled sixty percent of the time. I was on the road. I was away from home, in hotel rooms, lonely. But lonely comes with alcohol. So you know, I I really probably wasn't lonely, but alcohol makes you feel lonely because you isolate and all these other things happen. So. Mm -hmm. So I was isolated, um, alone, isolated and drinking alone, late at night when no one could see it. Mm -hmm. So no one knew, not nobody knew, um, except for my husband, who I, who did know. <laughs> so, um, so then it got worse and worse and worse, and um, at some point. I got laid off again. So I got laid off again in October, which was just this last October. Okay. And when I, oh, and I'm sorry, in the middle of all of that, I had several people in my family die. Mm. So this makes it even worse. So sadness compounded with lack of self-esteem, compounded with alcohol. Um, I My dad died, my sister-in-law died, my favorite aunt died, and my favorite uncle died. I took custody of my nephew, who was 17, and he tried to commit suicide, and it was a really hard... My mom got dementia, her husband died. Like, all these things happened. And so uh, it just got worse. So I quit somewhere in there. I said, after my dad died, I said, I can't drink. This is... I'll go too far. I'll go too deep. Right. Um, so I did, and then I 
instead of really quitting though, I just, it almost got worse. Like I quit maybe for a month or two, but then I'd be like, oh, just a little, and I didn't want to tell my husband. Mm -hmm. So that almost made it worse because now it was being hidden. Sure. I was going to ask that a minute ago when you said, you know, the only person that knew was your husband. What, what was that dynamic like? Oh, you know, he's the most amazing person on the planet. He was waiting, I think, until I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. He took care of me. Was there discussion of, hey, you're doing this a lot? Or was it more just he but knew he, that you like, knew for yourself? He and, knew that I knew, yeah. Right. And he knew that I had to do it. Um, he'd say he was worried, concerned. But I had to be the one. He knew that. He's very, he's really smart. Right. <laughs> he's really wise. Well, also, I mean, this is me sort of projecting a little bit, but I think anybody who has any kind of understanding of how addiction works recognizes that you can't just kind of browbeat someone into getting sober or, you know, yeah. you get sober or else. I mean, that's yeah, just, he never it, said yeah. anything like that. He also had his best friend died. Um, he was an alcoholic and he died in a car crash not too many years before that mm. while, while being drunk. And so he's dealt with it in many levels. Sure. Um, but he doesn't drink. <clears throat> I mean, it's not because he ever did. He just never did. And mm. he doesn't. <laughs> so that was a, amazing and wonderful because we didn't have to change that dynamic. Sure. Because he never did. Right. So it's not like we were drinking buddies. You know? Right. So that was a good call on my part. <laughs> One of the good calls I made. Um, so anyway, it just got worse and I became more isolated and I was drinking on the sly, which is worse because you almost, it's almost like you have to drink more quickly. Right. So no one knows, right. you know, it's just this crazy mentality of, okay, no one's home. I need to do four shots in a row before they get here. Oh, they're still not here. I'll do one more, you yeah. know? So it's this terrible dynamic of just ugh, horrible. It, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing when you feel yourself starting to do you know behave in a way that you didn't think you would or definitely know you shouldn't but you these these metrics or this negotiating with yourself or these little um yeah for lack of a better term kind of metrics of well this this is you know this is a a line that i wouldn't have crossed and now you know yeah i didn't drink during the day oh good that's great sure. you know but when does the day end is it four o'clock <laughs> right. five o'clock seven o'clock eight o'clock i mean i don't know you know sure i also had all over the place i had measuring cups of little tiny shot glasses that had measurements hmm. so i could measure it like okay i'll just do two ounces but then I'd do two more ounces and then two more. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was never, it never actually worked. But that's what everybody does when right. you're an alcoholic. <laughs> they make a million excuses for why and how much. And, hmm. you know, you say you're not going to drink tomorrow. Everybody says that. I'm not going to have a drink tomorrow. For sure I'm not. And then suddenly it's tomorrow. You're drinking again. Yeah. You know, that day, that very day that you said you weren't. You know, so it's just a, it's a vicious cycle. But so your you said your dad had Alzheimer's. My mom. Your mom had Alzheimer's, and your dad had passed away. And passed away. you said, "I got to make a change here." I did, but I didn't do it then. That's when I falsely quit okay. and started to drink more. Okay. So then, when I got laid off in October, I did say I have to quit. 
um, there were a, bu a bunch of signs. I knew I was going to get laid off. It was it wasn't like here's your box and goodbye like it was at Target. This one was we're closing the company. We're keeping you through X date. So I knew it in advance. So it wasn't as devastating. Where Target, I was literally like I had a job and then I didn't have a job. Wow. It was like here's your box. Goodbye. You know you don't have a job. Here's your box. You're done. Put your stuff in it and leave. They call it the white box hmm. club. It's a very inhumane thing, but. In any case, this one I knew was coming. So in the process of, you know, like just before September-ish, you know, August, September, I started um, thinking about what I was going to do next. And um, in that process, I realized I, I don't, things were just hitting me over the head. Like every time I thought about it, it came back to me. And what it was saying was, you've got to quit drinking. Mm -hmm. You just... You just have to. But the hardest part about quitting quitting drinking is the, the first thing is to actually say out loud that you have a, a problem, which is the hardest thing to do. Hmm. I mean, I'm successful. I've done a million things. I've started schools. I've, I've helped a billion people get livers and, you know, a billion different things I've done. Everybody's looking up to me. So for me to say I'm an alcoholic, it's a really difficult thing to do first of all to myself and then second of all to the people around me so it took me I knew I needed to but I it took me months to actually do it and the reason it happened is because someone I met I was in a leadership training program and I was delivering um, a speech I had to speak in front of the a big group of people I had to do a presentation with an and I was part of a team. So anyway, one of the people that I met on that leadership in that leadership training training was um, an alcoholic, and she was in recovery. And I said, uh, "Oh yeah, I, uh, I I I quit drinking. I quit drinking, and you know, so, so many months ago, which again was really a lie, honestly, because I really hadn't." And she said, "Oh, that's great. You should come with me to an AA meeting." And I thought about it for probably six weeks, hmm. and then. One day, I just decided I'm going to go with her to an A meeting on Tuesday. It was October 23rd. And um, the Sunday before that Tuesday, I bought a bottle of champagne. And I celebrated the fact that I was going to not drink anymore by myself. Um, and then I went to the first A meeting on that Tuesday. And I've been sober ever since. Congrats. Thanks. Yeah. Just going back um, for me to play pop psychologist for a second, what do you think? Um, I think I get what you're, you know, getting at when you say it was hard for a person, you know, with plenty of previous success to admit that you had a problem. But kind of dig into that a little bit. Why do you think that was such a hard step to get over? Why do you think it was, what do you think it was, you know, implied about you or, you know, what do you think was the bigger oh, reason for it was? sure, weakness. I mean, it implies weakness, right? Like somehow you can't control yourself or, you know, I mean, I think it, and, you know, one of the things that is true about people who, I had to survive really from age 10, that was a survival mechanism that kicked in. And one of the things that survivors do is um, they never ask for help. They do live in a slightly isolated world, 
um, because if you don't ask for help, you're kind of alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you tend to have a very loner mentality. Sure. And what I did very clearly, and I, but I actually started this before. I mean, I've always been this way, um, was to give to others, but not receive. So I would help everybody else, but never would I say I need help, mm-hmm. ever. It just was not going to happen, ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so saying that you're an alcoholic means you're admitting that you need help to get over something. You know, I quit smoking without any AIDS. I quit doing coke. I just was like, when I decided I didn't want to do something or alternately that I did want to do something, right. like I need, I need to build a Chinese school. Okay. You just, with all your might, you go build a Chinese school, you know, but um, this one, I was, I was, I was helpless, truly. Powerless. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I told myself over and over again that I was going to, <laughs> but I was never successful. Hmm. So it sounds like chaos was sort of a, was, was around all the time from the time you were young. Why did you, did you ever think at the time why you started using drugs? No, I had, I don't, I didn't even know really. I had no idea. Um, maybe in my mind it was like, why wouldn't I? I mean, I think it was definitely no matter what, you know, it was, my house was hell, right? So you're trying to survive in a very messy, ugly, scary place. And I think, you know, how do you turn it off? I learned early that Valium did that. Um, you know, I had a great example of someone drinking till they were, you know, almost dead. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom combined pills and alcohol. So, you know, I saw that. I mean, you, you could go either way. I think, you know, some people would go like, no way in hell am I ever doing that, which I think my sister kind of did. Sure. And then there was me who was like, bring it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give me anything to numb feelings. Yeah. I think that's a, a very interesting and valid point that, you know, people kind of this fork in the road happens whether they know it or not, but they either make the decision that they're all in or that they're all out. I had a, when I, when I studied abroad, uh, I had a friend that I met. Um, I don't know if you'd want me to say his name, but I'll just say his name was Rusty. He was from Texas. He was, um, I wish I could say his last name cause it's about as Texas of a name as you <laughs> could imagine. But, um, his dad was in jail for vehicular homicide, you know, while drinking and we were 20 years old and just, I mean, I actually have regret about the way I behaved when I studied abroad, just because I was like, I got to live in London for four months and I don't, I don't remember anything other than just, well, we're just getting trashed all the time. You know, I did the same thing in Uruguay and New Zealand. I mean, anywhere I ever went, I still did the same thing. I've always done that. Yeah. It was like, well, you know, how do we get to know the culture? Well, let's go get a buzz and hang out with people. And yeah, it's kind of a waste. (laughs) Totally. So, but anyways, the point was, yeah, I think that's an interesting um, perspective that people kind of either go all in or all out. They Ultimately, though, it's to, so there's a couple things I'd say about that. One is, I have a really active brain. Sorry, I keep opening and closing my That's all right. Um, I have a really active brain. My brain is super active, and I, I can't compare it to somebody else's, but I know that mine is making gigantic leaps of thinking all the time, and it's it's hard. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I actually feel like I probably 
drank in part just to numb yeah. that. To calm your mind down. Yeah. Yeah. My monkey brain. So, but before that, when I was younger, it was clearly, that wasn't true. It was clearly just to numb yeah. myself entirely. <laughs> and so do you, that's kind of something I've been thinking about a little bit more for myself and I haven't quite figured it out, but you know, why did I think, you know, why did you know, I was kind of trying to get at it with you? Like, why did you think you were starting to do that at the time? And it, it's on, you know, to numb the pain to kind of just because it was it was what you would do in that situation. You know, I mean, it was just there in front of you. Do but there you was really nowhere else to go. Sure. You know, who you're supposed to go to your parents. Right. right. I didn't. There was no place. Right. <laughs> I don't know, and I honestly cannot tell you how I knew that Valium was something that I should, could, would take. I have no idea how I knew that hmm. by the time I was 13 or 14. I don't have any idea, other than that my mom had pills as part of her drinking. I don't know. Maybe she took Valium. I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know. A lot of it is a blur. I mean, it's, you know, tra the trauma brain doesn't remember a lot. Interesting. Something that I heard recently that I think is really true is when you, when when somebody has what we might call in AA, they call it a character defect or a flaw or whatever. And sure. I don't actually agree with that terminology, but hmm. um, it's funny because it's Oprah and I don't, I'm not really an Oprah watcher, but she recently, and this is happening now across the nation, across the U.S. and maybe internationally, I don't know, but this idea that tr trauma, um, it sets your, especially childhood trauma, sets your neurological pathways sure. for the reaction that you then continue for the rest of your life. Sure. Um, so, so once you kind of address that, you can actually get rid of uh, that type of reacting, right? So, so whatever I set in place then did continue until now. Right. Um, and the thing that Oprah said that I thought was pretty cool was. Um, don't ev when you think about people, don't think about what's wrong with them. Think about what happened to them. Right. Which I think is a really good um, way to look at it. You know, it's it's not recreationally used. It's like something happened that put me in a state of something more. <laughs> right. Right. And it. I mean, it's it's very easy, um, depending on the way your mind works, but it would be easy to kind of treat that as a cop-out right that you oh know, well, people if you're just, not willing to change it yeah maybe or or for people <laughs> who are just like you know what that's baloney you make a decision every time you pour vodka down your neck oh or yeah you but make, i yeah you know, I, and, and so I, I absolutely disagree i mean i agree in both sides kind of a little bit right but or i guess the you know the key is empathy right or at least conceding that um you know things happen to people that as you said they pave you know or they they pave the neural pathways of the way you're going to operate i mean there's a reason it's unrelated to this but like huge percentages of people who molest children were molested as children i mean there's a reason these types of behaviors yeah. get yeah. you know put into your brain and so with a you know substance abuse um I think people who don't maybe necessarily have experience with it or are just more kind of, uh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. It's like, well, you, you know, you just make bad decisions over and over. And it's like, 
That is true. There, there is an element of decision making for sure. I'm not, I would never uh, take away personal accountability for doing the things we do, but there's also, you know, there's something insane when you, you wake up in the morning and you're like, just don't do this today. And that's the day that it's like not even noon yet. And you're doing that thing. And you're like, I, all I had to do today is not do, not this. do that. Like this was not a very big goal. And instead of waiting the normal five o'clock somewhere. It got or, earlier. Whatever, I, yeah. It's just like, because I was thinking about not yeah, doing it. What is going on in my brain that is pushing me to do this? And yeah. what is it trying to make up for? Or what is it well, trying I to? I honestly can't speak for someone else. Yeah. It's making up for something. That's for sure. Um, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can speak for myself. And the changes I've made since um, getting sober mm -hmm. have been around uh, trauma work and kind of trying to rearrange the patterns, the, the things that I believe were set in place when I was younger. And I am telling you, there's no way that it isn't true in my case. Hmm. I am... Um, so much better than I was before and it's probably it's a combination of everything I'm doing you know not drinking doing the trauma work um, taking care of myself for the first time in my entire life hmm. I have never taken care of I mean I've I've eaten and exercised and done all this I've always eaten well and I've always exercised but the part I have never done is actually have empathy or sympathy or care for the way yourself. that I, for myself, the way that I would care for my daughter, I've never done for me, hmm. ever. I beat myself up. I mean, drinking, you're beating yourself up every single day. Right. Working seventy hours a week, you're beating yourself up. You know, thinking that you have to save the entire world before yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all beating yourself up. So that, in combination with trauma work, in combination with not drinking. Um, when you say trauma work, do you mean like? therapy kind of just yeah i'm doing trying to repave these pathways well that you're there's talking something about. called emdr which i'm doing which is um it's electromagnetic and it's you it's actually electricity that you, you hold in your hands and it it goes like this and there's also this it it makes your eyes move okay um but for someone who feels like they have had trauma i would highly and they need to talk to a therapist to make sure that it's right for them but sure emdr has done a huge has shifted my brain right unbelievably so i'm a very grateful uh for that i got in and was able to do it so it sounds like um the reaction you're having sounds similar to what a lot of people in 12-step work feel they when they have some sort of religious i shouldn't say religious a spiritual experience you know they uh, God or higher power or whoever comes into your life and sort of takes this burden off of you. And then it, it isn't work anymore. You know, it isn't, yeah, totally. you're not, you're not I, white knuckling exactly. it every I day. I'm not. I, right. since I quit drinking after, I mean, you can't count the first several months because those sure. are, that was just insane. Um, that was really hard. Those two months were really hard. Maybe three. I don't really know. Well, that's a lot of just like habit reformation. You're 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 not used to yet all the. When your brain is still functioning in the same exact way, but right. you're just not drinking, so right. um, it's just not okay. Well, and being in all your normal routines that always had alcohol or drugs in them, and then you're now basically conscious of the fact that this is when I used to drink 
to do this, that, or the other, or this is when I would get high before going to do this or that or the other. And you have to kind of. Yeah. I'd sit at the table with my husband and something would happen and I'd say, okay, now I would go drink three shots. What do I do? Right. You know, what do I, what do I do instead? <laughs> so it's like filling that immediate void. But now I don't even, like I have wanted to drink, like had an urge for about 30 seconds. Sure. Maybe twice. And I used to not be able to get through one day without drinking. Right. It's crazy. What do you feel? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but did you feel for you that like a, was there a, like a really concrete rock bottom experience or was it that you were just so low in your self-esteem and your personal behavior that yeah, it was no, like... nothing. I have been knock on wood, the most fortunate person in the world. I mean, I never gotten, I never got a DWI. I never got in an accident. Sure. Um, I didn't hurt anybody in, you know, extremely, you know, horrible ways. Mm -hmm. I hurt people, of course, but not, you know, like life or death. Bodily. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I was really fortunate that way. Um, but I was at that, I was bottom. I was like, I can't, I just, I can't do it anymore. So the truth is, though, one thing did actually make me quit I think but it wasn't at the same time so I, I thought about this months and months and months before um, I started to feel like my daughter didn't trust me mm. and while she didn't necessarily know I was drinking I just felt like she didn't trust me as much as she trusted her dad and I I would say it's because of her erratic behavior whether she knew there was alcohol or not I don't think she did but my behavior was erratic so you never drank in front of her or nope not even like it. a glass of wine at dinner. Or Earlier whatever. I did, but not in the last. When she was conscious enough, you know, sure. when she grew up enough, right. I, I did not drink in front of her. Okay. But she just sees. Erratic behavior. Yeah. Mom's you know, like I'm good when here. I get home, but then, you know, four hours later, I'm like, ma loud. And, you know, I bang into her room and say, what are you doing? I mean, whatever, you know, just yeah. erratic and, you know. I'm sure unpleasant for her. She's she's my polar opposite. She's very quiet and she's a um, introvert. And, you know, I just wasn't, I was being me, but just on alcohol, which is like ramp it up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was always sort of nagging at me in the back of my brain. Mm -hmm. And then I just, it was so clear. I was hiding it. And it was, I was hiding it. It was horrible and then i couldn't remember where i even put it like where did i put that bottle of vodka hmm. and i was buying little ones so that you could just down them and throw them out you know i mean it was bad hmm. um so no nothing happened other than i just needed to stop sure and i knew it it's like i am i am at rock bottom actually right what what's been the hardest part for you about getting sober uh you know, I think I said sort of the hardest parts were the, the, the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, it's not been hard. It's been the most amazing and wonderful thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell us more about that. Um, I don't feel lonely. I don't feel alone. I feel um, happy, which I hadn't. I mean, I have the most beautiful family. I have a great house. I have like I have more than most people have. Right. Um, and I wasn't happy. 
but I, but because of alcohol, I'm sure of it because I was isolated and lonely and um, in a vicious cycle of just despair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm happy now. Like, I'm actually happy. Like, I laugh out loud a lot. And I'm sure I did then, too. It's hard to really, when you, you know, it's hard to remember, like, what was before the last hard three years, you know. Mm-hmm. I look at photos and I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, we had a blast. We always had fun. We've always had fun. But there were three years of sort of hell. Hmm. Um, which I'm so glad are over. And I'm just grateful and thankful and um, I'm giving, uh, you know, to others like I have done in the past. I'm not just sitting alone drinking. Right. (laughs) What have you found helpful for you in getting sober? Well, the work I've been doing on outside of going to AA meetings, which I think are really useful. um, I've joined other, I've, I've tried out a bunch of different recovery locations and centers that are not AA focused. So that's good because I'm always meeting people that have had it worse. Um, you know, I'm sitting at tables with meth addicts and uh, people who have living on the street with their kids. I mean, you know, yeah. it's sort of like uh, seeing, you know, what addiction does, you know, like I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see that from that lens and we're all, you know, we've all had the same we've all had addictions but you know for some it's a lot worse so so doing that kind of stuff i think is really helpful um i've been doing volunteer work which i think is super helpful again with populations that are less fortunate than myself and um struggling you know just puts a perspective into like how lucky i am and so aa volunteer um my trauma work has been really really useful to me um, I make a, I make a, I've made a commitment to meeting with someone I don't know or that I know, but I don't really know, um, every day. Hmm. I've been doing that for the last month, six weeks. So there, there's people that I've like, I'm friends with on Facebook who I really admire, but I'm not really their friend. So hmm. I've been reaching out to them and saying, Hey, can we have coffee? And, um, so I'm meeting new people who are doing good things in the world. And that's really helpful. Because they're actually really good people. Yeah. So they've committed themselves to others. And, you know, that's quite different than corporate America. Sure. Which was never really where I should have been. And partly, probably part of my demise. Because I just wasn't really a good fit for... I've never been a money person. I don't really care about money. And I mean, I do to the extent that, yeah, we got to feed and put our daughter through school and stuff. But, right. Um, you know, I'd be happy living in a tent instead of a house. You know, but so anyway... I've been just doing lots of stuff like that in recovery, and it's been just fantastic. Do you foresee that being kind of what keeps you yeah, sober? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. There's no question in my mind that staying connected to the recovery community and helping others will be what keeps me sober. I think that's pretty huge, too. I mean, it's no secret, obviously, but, like, you know, I take part in 12-step work and um, even just being at the meetings, you know, as you said, I was at one the other day and there was a guy who came in and basically just said, uh, yeah, I got kicked out of a halfway house today and I'm going to be sleeping in my car. And um, It's cold outside. Yeah. And <laughs> so if any of you guys have any ideas, let me know. And, yeah, you know, fortunately, like, somebody there was like, see me after the meeting, you know, but it's like, yeah. as you said, you know, if you can, if you're grumbling about your day and some nonsense that happened and then you come out of one of those it's pretty hard to not feel grateful for 
everything. Yeah. And I kind of have known that forever because I did work in um, nonprofits for a really long time doing direct services. Sorry, I'm going to... It's all good. Um, so I've known my whole life, you know, that there were people that had it worse than I did, which is kind of why I didn't really even pay any attention to my own trauma because I was like, you know... I'm not walking out the door and there's no bombs going off and my my spouse didn't just get shot in front of me and right. nobody's being tortured. I mean, really, I've got it really good. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that also at the same time, I don't mean your perspective, I mean the perspective that like compared to other people, you know, so therefore you should just kind of buck up and... Which is what I did. Right, but it's so it's now, kind of a polluted way of thinking no, it when is. it's just totally like... Is. So now the perfect mix is... I did live a life that was mine and traumatic mm-hmm. and um, working through that is the best thing I could ever do because, well, I'm healing for mm-hmm. one, which a healed person is a much better giver than a not healed person right. <laughs> at the end of the day. So, um, so yeah, staying connected uh, with with recovery period is really, I think I, I actually believe that I'm going to move in that direction for my work as well. Uh, Valium kind of makes you not feel anything, right? Antidepressants make you not feel anything. That's kind of the, is, so is the feel of, you know, kind of connection for you, what you think is the most important part of recovery for you? It is. Not feeling that isolation anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it. I mean, I, you know, I was so lonely, but, why was I? I don't know. I had this beautiful child and this beautiful husband, like right out, right there, <laughs> right. right there in front of me. I lived you know? with them every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm so alone. I just cry. I would just sob. Like I'm so, I feel so lonely, you know, and I don't anymore. I, I know what you mean. I, um, it was, it was weird for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty open book. I wear my emotions on my sleeve somewhat, you know, I mean, my wife knows me well. And, uh, after I stopped doing everything and just made this decision that I have to like, I can't cope with whatever I'm trying to cope with by getting high every day or whatever. And I remember, um, you know, she was putting, I think putting the baby to bed one night and I was standing in the kitchen, just cleaning up the kitchen after dinner or whatever. And I think the big kids were maybe downstairs, you know, reading or hanging out before we were going to have family time when the baby goes to bed and watch TV or something. I don't know. And I just started sobbing and I was just like racking myself and bouncing my face off the floor, just like laying on the ground, just, and it was like the hardest I've ever cried. And I was just like heaving and I couldn't stop myself. And it was like, what am I crying about? Like, this is better, you know, but it was, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like the, like th- this yeah. getting these pollutants, like fully out of my system and like getting rid of this thought process that I need to, you know, make everything like just cope or deal with using a chemical imbalance. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, and then, but, but on the flip side of that is like immediately after that, it, it was, um, like knowing that I didn't have to lie to my wife. Like the only thing I lied about in my life was to my best friend and my partner about what I was doing. Yeah. And um, knowing that that was no longer the case, it, it was like just this 
and I don't even know if she knew it, but it was like this total um, weight, this just nastiness in my, it's like a fog around you. I'm like, you know, pig pen or something, just this yeah. like knowing that there's this cloud of deception. And even if, you know, on the surface, she and I are getting along fine and we're talking, oh, next week we have this. And oh, did you yeah, yeah, make yeah. a lunch for this yeah. guy yet? You know, knowing in the back of my mind that there's this deception going on. And so when that was lifted, it was, I mean, it's like the thing that, I think about if I ever have a fleeting thought of, wouldn't it be nice to just, you know, get high or wouldn't it be nice to drink or, you know, what, you know, wouldn't, shouldn't you reward yourself with this or whatever? It's like, no, because this is way better. So much better. And truth, that is true. I, I think that's probably similar for all of us. I, I proud myself in not crying like forever. I was sure. like, I am not a crier, you know, go away, <laughs> cry babies. Like, it could be worse, <laughs> sure. you know, but I cried more. I cried so much in making the decision to not drink. Like I cried over and over again every time I thought about not drinking. Yeah. And then I cried a ton after I quit. Like I was, I cried every day probably for, because I didn't know what to do with my feelings. It was like, I'm frustrated, you know, and that would make me cry mm -hmm. or I'm mad and that would make me cry. So it was a lot of crying, a lot of crying. <laughs> in the beginning um but yeah the cloud of deceit being gone is huge and not only to my husband and my daughter who are the most important people in my they are the most important people ever but just to the world in general like i don't have to hide something anymore i don't need to go in a dark closed room and silently drink by myself mm -hmm. you know like that is miserable that is a miserable place to be do you feel any um, need for secrecy regarding being in recovery? You know, I don't because I think that the shame and the stigma, I believe strongly that there are a lot of people, women like me, I don't, I, I'm not really that in tune to men, you know, like me, <laughs> but I will say that there are women like me who are successful, um, who are, you know, great mothers, they're great at work. They do great things for their community, but are silently drinking. Sure. Um, you know, that one glass of wine turns into a bottle and a half. And my guess is there's a lot of people out there like that who are struggling and they cannot overcome the stigma or the shame that goes along with that. So if I can be a leader in saying, you know what? I am successful. I'm smart. I'm talented. And I drank. I'm happy to do tell that story. Right. I'm not ashamed and because no, I don't shame drink. will keep you from not drinking. Right. Say so, that again. Shame will keep you from not drinking. Right, because you're ashamed of yourself, so you'll just you just keep doing it in silence to say that you are an alcoholic. Oh. Did I say it right? To, uh, I think. Shame I think what will you keep you from drinking. Well, shame. No, shame will keep, keep you, you from not drinking. In that you're, you would, you'd rather just drink and be miserable keep than it admit quiet that you're than an, say alcoholic. That you're an alcoholic. Yeah. yeah, I did say it right. Yeah, and I believe that to be true. I believe that to be true. Yeah. I believe half of my problem was I can't say it out loud. Well, isn't it interesting too? Well, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I've, I've talked about this with some other people that um, as soon as I stopped drinking, I mean, you just people generally kind of run in crowds like themselves, right? So, I mean, it just instantly became apparent to me how ubiquitous alcohol was in 
in society and or at least my version of society you know i mean there's bloody marys every time you go out and you know i mean i look at my facebook feed and it's like wine seems to be the thing that it's it's like it's it's totally oh you know okay we're really we're actually cultured because we're drinking yeah we're uh yeah we're we're sitting around being intellectuals and it's like oh i gotta i gotta big pile of laundry to fold bring over the bottle of wine girl you know like it's like is this this is kind of a joke but it's also kind of like no it's not actually it's i think that's really true that that's happening a lot and it's acceptable yeah um it's i mean there's so many ironies like we meet before aa meetings on tuesdays and we meet at a byerly's and lunds which you would think okay that's great you know just go have some food but right when you walk in the door is a liquor store (laughs) yeah you know it's in the byerly's yeah yeah to make it easier to have it all just in your shopping and so we have to walk by that every time we meet to you know talk about being sober (laughs) yeah i noticed it a lot though i mean it's kind of interesting you said it because for um you know you're as a leader of women um i have a professional job but i for a lot of you know my wife has a professional job too and when my big kids were little i was the guy that would get them on the bus or sometimes um you know, the economy was terrible and I would be, it would be like, rather than spending $2,000 a month on daycare, I'll be home more during the day and go work at night. And, you know, it was like 2009 global financial crisis. Like we're going to, you know, we got to just do what we got to do to maintain here. But I would take the kids all over the place. And it was like, we'd go for walks, we'd go for hikes, we'd go to the community center and play in the playground and stuff. And it was absolutely, um, like I said, ubiquitous that just kind of a lot of, you know, so I ended up being around a lot of like young moms actually. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, it's like a joke. It's like a meme, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, let's meet up and drink wine. And, you know, not at the community center, but like it was the talk all the time. Like, yeah, you know, where, how do I just get by with these, you know, I got these three little kids and my life is crazy. So you know, he doesn't get home till seven and okay, five o'clock, the wine comes out and just mm-hmm. let's get numb, you know? And it was like, hmm, I don't know, this is, yeah. I guess it's better if you were drinking vodka, would this be such a joke? Like, I yeah. Know. Well, um, no, I think they're both bad. <laughs> right. right. Uh, believe me, I've done them both. Yeah. I can tell you, I mean, vodka's worse, certainly, but only because it's more, it's stronger, you know? Right. And if you drink a lot of it, you, you know, you, you're more drunk. <laughs> It goes sideways pretty quick, but I guess I just mean, yeah, they. But the idea is the same. So you are numbing yourself. And I honestly didn't. I actually have been lucky to have friends who don't drink. So I didn't have to reset everything. Sure. My husband being one of them. Right. Um, But I have a fair amount of friends who don't drink either. So, you know, that that's we didn't drink together. So, you know, that so I don't need to like not see everybody in my world. Right. But as far as being sober, I did think of one more thing. So I think, um, you, I can't remember now what it was. You said something that reminded me of another thing that you need to do. I think one is, you know, who do you hang out with? So mm-hmm. I've really adjusted a lot of things about what I do. I can't, I used to go listen to music in bars and I've tried a couple of times and I've just not felt good the next day. Like I wasn't tempted to drink while there, but the next day I just had this weird, uneasy feeling. Hmm. Um, so I'm not, I'm going to stay away from him for a while. Maybe like you were trying to hang on to the lifestyle yeah, or maybe, something. Yeah, maybe. I don't or... know, but I just felt icky. I didn't feel good. Like, And actually for me, this is maybe uniquely me. I don't know. But my body hurt 
a lot. Like I was in severe body aches and pains for a good two months after I quit drinking. Hmm. Like my whole body hurt. Um, that's now gone. So it was definitely part of um, quitting. Hmm. Um, you know, you're you're removing toxic substances oh, yeah. from your body and it has to adjust to that. Yeah. <laughs> so people is another thing I think you have to be mindful of. It's just like, who are you hanging out with and what are they what are they thinking and where are they at in their head and you know who are the right people to spend time with and i've found my family is really a great place to spend my time um my daughter is clearly trusting me again Mm. in a different way and i'm present and here and home and um it's completely different than it was and it is phenomenal so all i'm trying to say i guess is in sobriety find people that support you in that Mm -hmm. and that appreciate it and that have empathy for what you're going through and doing um, and who aren't using because I I don't think that's helpful. I really don't. I don't think it's helpful to hang around people that are drinking and you're just not. You're there, but you're not drinking. I don't think it's a good thing. Yeah. I think it's easy to just not do anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Oops. Sorry. That's all good. <laughs> I think this is a good time to kind of wrap it up. Anyways, I, you know, you answered everything that I wanted to cover. Is there anything else you'd want to say to people? Um, any other further thoughts? Yeah, you know, I would say, honestly, you know, because I'm now sober, people will say to me, you know, people who are drinkers will say, I wonder if I have a problem. I wonder if I should quit drinking. And the answer really is, if you're wondering, I think, I think, if you're wondering if you have a problem, you probably do. Right. (laughs) And so my advice would be just deal with it because, again, let go of the idea that you're not perfect or that something's wrong with you or that, you know, it's shameful that you are using. Like, just let all of that go and get help because it is better. It is better. My life is better. My life is completely better. (laughs) Cheers to that. All right. I think we're done. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe learned something. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and feel free to share with anyone else you think might benefit from it. Thanks again. Take care.